Hello and welcome to episode 4 of our Data Center podcast series, where we take a dive into the world of data centers, providing insights on the rapidly growing industry that we should all be aware of, as data centers become increasingly central to the way in which the world works. I'm Charlie Goodwin, an associate in the Simmons Insurance and Construction Group, and in this episode we continue our discussion from episode 3 of our Data Center podcast series, as we take a closer look at data centers as a mainstream asset class and explore the underlying business. Once again, I'm going to be joined by experts from across the Simmons & Simmons data center team, as well as guest speaker Tom Dryden of McGillan Partners, as they provide their insight into the sector as a whole, providing some key commercial and practical advice on a variety of data center deals that they have experienced, and talking us through recent trends they have seen in the market. So for the first topic of this part two, we're going to focus on the inception of a data center and its construction. I spoke with Duncan Athol and Andrew Russell, members of the Simmons Energy, Natural Resources and Infrastructure team who specialise in construction law, to get their thoughts on the key issues facing developers in the current market. So Duncan, what are the typical forms of contract and procurement methods of data centre design and construction? Thanks, Charles. So typically, the forms of contract we see are broken down into what I would call two separate categories. First being um, FIDIC-based contracts. So this is an international standard form of contract uh, that we see used throughout the world. And when it comes to procurement of data centers, the sort of what we would call a standard form form of contract, I produced by an independent body, the FIDIC form of contract uh, would apply. The reason for this is that FIDIC has numerous forms of contract that are design and build bases, which means that the contractor is fully responsible for not only building out the works, but also the design of the works and the FIDIC suite of ton- contracts uh, tailors and works well with the design and build procurement process, and particularly around data centres, because obviously data centres are built all around the world. This international form of contract is known and used all around the world, and therefore a lot of contractors um, are comfortable in operating and using the FIDIC form of contract. The second area um, of types of contract that we see in relation to the procurement of data centres is the what we would call an individually tailored or bespoke form of contract and this is where clients such as big tech clients will have their own forms of documentation that are completely bespoke so compare that to the fit it where they're not based on a standard form they're individually drafted that's largely on the basis that a lot of these tech clients are american based and therefore they have particular american type clauses that they like to include within their uh, forms of contract just no matter where the jurisdiction is around the world and therefore these big tech occupiers of data centers and builders of data centers like to use their own forms of contract <clears throat> so that's in terms of the forms of contract and in terms of procurement methods i think it's generally the key, the key from a construction perspective in terms of procurement is how the contract is set up so whether that's fidic or a standard form you'll generally see a contractor having to sign up to a building contract which only tells them to do x amount of works first so what typical that typically looks like is a contractor saying right we sign up for this contract and from day one we will build out the shell and core to the data center only the actual data halls that go within the shell and core i.e the unit the built the overall building um, are generally instructed in further down the line now the reason for this is that developers particularly tech developers still don't quite know at the point that they sign up their building contract what their actual demand is in relation to how much usage they need or how much output they need from their data center i.e they don't know what their client base has is or has been firmed up for the pipeline this generally comes such last minute that developer clients need as much flexibility as possible 
So what you tend to see is is a mechanism within the building contract that allows the developer to instruct in data halls throughout any point of the build. You'll also see clauses that have set timeframes and set cost amounts that are associated with those instructions relation to data halls. Now, obviously, a big commercial point to this is that developers and contractors need to agree what those time and cost increments are every time they instruct in a data hall. And that is where a big part of the negotiation happens at the start of any project, even at head to term stage, because really it is a commercial discussion. Once those commercials agreed, then the lawyers like us will just go and document and draft in what's been commercially agreed. But I think at a principle level, it is that distinction between a contractor only building out one chunk of works and then waiting for instructions to build out everything else. Now, obviously, from a contractor perspective, you price your the cost of your works on how much you're being asked to do. So therefore, that again, that factors into the mix of how much they are expecting to be charged or they charge for each data hall that's instructed. And again, that's a big part of the commercial discussion that goes on between the contractor and developer. But the developer generally <coughs> requires this flexibility for the, the reasons I've said. And contractors generally, because they use the same developer clients, they know that how how this market is booming and growing that inevitably even though they're signing up just to build one chunk of works they are going to get instructions for the full set of works i.e however many data halls that potentially are going to be instructed through the life cycle of those works i suppose one other thing to realize and be aware of is not only your time and cost adjustments but obviously the further you go through the build the more of an impact that is going to have on the contractor in terms of how long he can keep his cost and price his sorry his cost and timing for so again, another key part of the commercial discussions at the start of any procurement of a data centre is how long that developer's got to instruct in those increments, i.e. how long have they've got to instruct in the contract to tell they've got to build out further data halls. And again, that's a commercial discussion because from a contractor perspective, they can only hold their time and cost for a certain amount of time. But I think headline is, is that when you are talking about building data centres, people have to be aware that you're not asking the contractor to build everything at once. It's always staged. And I think for me as a construction lawyer, that's the big difference for me, documenting the building of a data centre as opposed to documenting the building of a central London office building. And Andrew, in terms of professional indemnity insurance provisions for developers and contractors, how is it best to deal with these during the current hard market? Thank you, Charles. In the current professional indemnity insurance market, we're increasingly seeing developers and contractors signing up to prescribe professional indemnity insurance provisions, be it under development agreement, building contract or forward funding agreement, but six or 12 months down the line, finding themselves potentially in breach when they are no longer able to procure the required professional indemnity insurance. Um, now, this can either be the level of insurance, so they may have signed up to 10, 20 million and now they're only able to procure five. But more often than not, what we're seeing difficulties around is contractors and consultants being unable to procure professional insurance on each and every claim basis. From a developer and contractor perspective, it's therefore imperative when negotiating terms to ensure when they're signing up to any uh, professional indemnity insurance amounts, ensuring that it's caveated subject to what's available in the market at commercially reasonable rates and terms. By moving away from the absolute obligation, the contract is able to flex with movement in the market. On the current outlook, the professional indemnity market is continuing to harden and we expect this to be a theme throughout 2022. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, I would just say to, to add to Andrew's points, this is a, a point that's not going away. Um, the insurance market generally throughout the globe is under seismic change. Um, this isn't just professional indemnity insurance, but also existing structure insurance, third party liability insurance. 
but particularly in the professional indemnity insurance market this is something that you have to cater for so both occupier if you're acting for a developer occupiers as andrew said are going to want to be very prescriptive in their underlying documents in terms of not only what the contractor is to hold but also the professional team in terms of each level of professional indemnity insurance so it's not only the contractor's pi that you have to worry about to make sure that you can accommodate those requirements as andrew says six twelve months down the line when the market is constantly changing but also your design team because your design team is also under the same pressure in terms of pi amounts that they can um obtain from the market not just in terms of the value but also in terms of the basis that they hold so for example each and every claim insurance which would always be seen as your go-to basis of pi is becoming more and more hard to obtain in the market and a lot more policies now are now based on in the aggregate or in the aggregate with a couple of reinstatements now the big issue with that is that unlike each and every claim insurance when you have an aggregate amount of insurance that is a a, a pot of insurance that applies across that particular contractors or consultants whole portfolio of projects so therefore if you are coming across an aggregated amount of insurance particularly as an end user or you're asking a developer to build out for you you need to make sure that you do your due diligence and work out a how many projects they've got on in their portfolio how exposed are they and b are there any claims within that year that are going through the, the claim process because as it's an aggregate amount you could quite easily see a huge claim being made under a data center and another project they signed up to eating into your ability in that calendar year to make a claim for the particular project that you're involved with so the aggregate basis of pi insurance has a big impact on your risk profile as an end user being able to make a claim and just as a final question obviously the data center market is continuing to grow globally Andrew, what are the issues needed to be considered here when constructing projects in new jurisdictions? Thank you, Charles. There'll be a whole host of issues to consider when constructing projects in new jurisdictions, including labour and material procurement, for example. But a key point to take advice on from the outset is the position of local law. Take Germany as an example. Regardless of the position that has been negotiated and agreed between the parties, the German Civil Code will trump certain contractual provisions. Similarly, in other jurisdictions you can find particularly restrictive environmental legislation that will again override any contractual position agreed between the parties. Um, contractual negotiations are invariably time-consuming and costly, and to find at the end of that process, or even worse, in the end of a dispute, that certain local laws take precedence, it can have a significant impact both time, both from a time and cost perspective, but can be avoided if the right advice is taken at the outset. We would always suggest that the incumbent project council retains the pen, but local law advice is sought from the outset. Brilliant. Thanks both. Another obvious consideration for businesses operating in the data centre industry is tax implications of proposed transactions. To get an understanding on the common issues faced by the players in the market, I spoke with Joe Cruikshank, partner in the Simmons tax team. Joe, thanks for joining this episode. So my first question is, what are the tax issues that need to be considered when purchasing a data centre? So um, if you're purchasing a data centre business, you'll need to work out whether there should be VAT chargeable on the transaction. In many countries, there are special rules when a business is sold as a going concern, allowing businesses to treat the sale and purchase as VAT free. However, conditions need to be met for these special rules to apply. An area to be particularly wary of is whether the business is actually transferring a going concern. Businesses are often tripped up where an acquisition is made, but the assets are brought in-house rather than used to continue the same trading activity. Organisations purchasing data centres need to be wary of this, particularly if they'll be using the data centre as part of their own infrastructure 
rather than acquiring a going concern. When negotiating a sale or purchase, the back position must be clarified. That can be a significant cost for businesses, or at the very least, it can negatively impact cash flow. Different considerations will apply if the purchase is affected via an acquisition of shares in a company. VAT and similar taxes typically would not apply, but stamp duties or transfer taxes may be payable. And just following that, what are the tax consequences of leasing data centres? So this is a topical issue which has recently been subject to European case law. In July 2020, the European Court of Justice ruled that the provision of data centre services by a Finnish OI company should be subject to VAT under the general VAT rules. The business tried to argue that it was providing immovable property, which is subject to a VAT exemption. Therefore, there should be no VAT on the services. However, the court ruled that the equipment was not immovable as they were not bolted to the floor and installed there permanently. Furthermore, customers did not have immediate and direct access to a specific area within the data centre. The data equipment was shared. Although in this case no VAT exemption applied, it was very fact-specific. So businesses should assess their own fact pattern carefully to determine whether VAT is applicable to services. And as a final question, can the operation of a data centre create a tax presence? So a fixed establishment is created for VAT purposes when there are both human and technical resources permanently present in a country or jurisdiction. Therefore, again, the answer to this question is very fact-specific. If a data centre is owned and operated by a business in another country, it could well create an establishment for VAT purposes, meaning that any supplies made from that data centre will be subject to the VAT rules of that country. If, however, the human resources used to operate the data centre are outsourced, arguably the business owning the data centre does not have both the human and technical resources needed to make a supply. Most countries don't consider a server on its own to create a fixed establishment for VAT purposes for a business using that server. However, it's also necessary to consider whether use of a server could result in a permanent establishment for corporate income tax purposes in the country where the data centre is located. In many jurisdictions, this may depend on whether the user owns a specific server or merely rents server capacity that could be on any server or servers. The exact detail of the contractual arrangements is therefore important in the tax analysis. Brilliant. Thanks, Joe. Our final topic in this episode focuses on insurance within the data centre industry. Insurance can play a useful role within a data centre's risk management framework, particularly in respect of cyber risk, which is not a new risk to data centres, but one that will no doubt grow as technology is further automated. Many industry experts agree that cyber insurance should be as high of a priority as fire and flood insurance. I spoke to Tom Dryden, a partner at McGill & Partners specialising in cyber insurance, to get his thoughts. Tom, thanks for joining the episode. Now, cyber insurance is obviously a critical form of insurance coverage for data centre providers. So from your perspective, what are the key considerations when approaching the market? Thanks, Charlie. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an obvious point to make that given the you know, nature of a data centre's operations, you know, and their, their sort of ongoing professional obligations to their clients, cyber insurance is a is a really critical and often quite complex insurance coverage that a provider will will usually be sort of contractually required to purchase, you know, up to a certain level of limit. Um, for, for a data centre provider, there's obviously quite a significant overlap of professional indemnity and cyber exposure. So we would typically see clients and advise clients or insured to purchase these 
these two covers together, um, usually blended, preferably, um, but at the very least, you know, with the same insurance carrier or provider. Um, data centers obviously have a professional obligation to ensure both the availability and confidentiality and integrity of, of their customers' data. So likely overlapping claims will include you know, a data breach or data protection issue, which will represent you know, both professional negligence issue, you know, a PI issue, um, as well as, of course, triggering some of the, the data privacy areas of exposure and, and loss that would usually be picked up by a typical cyber uh, policy. The, the other sort of side of the coin, I guess, is, is problems with availability um, at a data center. So, you know, a DDoS or ransomware or even just a sort of simple operational error or, or system failure will constitute both a liability issue for, uh, for the for PI error of exposure, you know, impacting SLAs or client obligations, um, but will also trigger, you know, the, the, the sort of first party costs and business interruption areas of loss under a typical cyber policy. Um, so, I mean, there's there's lots to consider under those two sort of heads of cover um, that we probably don't have time to go into right now. But but the main issue, I guess, what we'd say causing a lot of head headaches for, for our insureds is, is really the state of the cyber insurance market, what we call a, a hard market. Um, given given the, this is a sort of really critical area of, of coverage for, for data center providers, you know, they're unfortunately probably feeling the effects of the, the market conditions more, more than others. So you mentioned the cyber insurance is undergoing a turbulent period. Can you just tell us a bit more about that? So, yeah, the cyber insurance market is undergoing what we'd say is sort of a, a rapid period of correction after about 18 to 24 months of, of significant loss activity. Um, and this loss activity has been driven by by two key themes, really. Um, the first being ransomware attacks uh, and the second sort of threat of aggregated systemic attacks, typically aimed at, at IT service providers or technology providers. Um, and this this light this heightened loss environment uh, has led to a dramatic shift in appetite and a, an available capacity for for cyber insurance. There's, there's really just a you know simply put an imbalance of supply and demand for capacity, which puts significant pressure on pricing, premiums you know, premiums going up, retention levels also going up, and insurers are generally just being extremely selective on risks. Um, so for for data centres specifically, this um, you know this is an industry sector that does sit on the edge of appetite for much of the the insurance market, just given really their their critical position in the, the technology supply chain, you know, with a potential cyber incident at a data center, you know, having the potential for knock-on impact at, at multiple clients simultaneously. Um, and we've seen some high-profile incidents, the like of Equinix, you know, and Cognizant over the last couple of years. Um, they represent just high-value targets, I guess, for threat actors. That being said, typically we would see, you know, the standard of, of cybersecurity controls at data centers, just given what they do, be is, is extremely high compared to you know your average your average insured which makes it easier for insurers to get comfortable but just being where they sit you know in that in that sort of technology ecosystem uh it, it's it's a high exposure target so insurers will want an insured like a data center to, to demonstrate that's got a really good handle on on handling its exposure to a cyber attack um and, and they'll expect minimum standard of controls you know being the sort of mfa for remote access and privileged access edr deployment and and sort of general you know general cyber security controls um also you know look at how it might manage its liability perhaps through sort of contracting so clauses such as you know service level agreements limitation of liability um, probably all the themes you know you've discussed uh, from a legal aspect across this pod podcast um so whereas previously you know data center providers were 
submit a sort of simple application to secure cyber coverage just in the in the market conditions has become a lot more challenging um so w we recommend working with a broker you know experienced specifically in the technology sector to provide you know a more detailed and complete view of risk to help you differentiate yourself in, in the market against your peers um th th it's a process that's taking a lot longer it's a bit more arduous um and more in depth but but those you know those clients who are willing to to be more prepared take that more thorough steps to, to to differentiate themselves are those that are going to ultimately uh, land you know securing relevant levels of cover um based on what they need probably contractually but also just based on their, their risk profile brilliant thanks tom well that concludes part two of our episode doubleheader on data centers as a mainstream asset class and the underlying business of a data center my thanks to andrew duncan joe and tom for joining the second part and my thanks to you for listening in our next episode, we develop our discussion on data centers as a mainstream asset class by getting further insights from and on four key growing international markets for data centers, Ireland, Germany, the Netherlands, and the Middle East. Until then, goodbye.